all of us are keenly aware of the complexity of this 21st century that we are living in. We have computers. We have tablets. We have smartphones. We have smart TVs. We've got all kinds of technological gadgets at our fingertips. To a recovering dinosaur like myself, it sometimes is almost overwhelming. Most of us in this room can remember when man first walked upon the moon. We also remember things like party lines. And now we carry a phone in our pocket. We remember step-side pickups with three gears on the column. Now we've got vehicles with backup cameras and lane change warnings and some that will even drive and park themselves. We can remember when types of heart or kidney or lung surgery or liver transplants and things like that were just a rarity. They were pioneering feats in medicine and now they're commonplace. Every time we turn around and everywhere we look, the complexities and the intricacies of our world today are constantly right there in front of our eyes. Even religion at times seems to be complicated. There's so many different groups teaching so many differing doctrines. We talked last week about the new gospel. Do we need a new gospel for a new age? And we came to the conclusion we don't. That the ancient gospel as practiced in the first century met the needs of ancient man and it'll meet the needs of modern man. You see, when you look at it, there's a beautiful simplicity that exists in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is free from the conflicts and the complexities of so much of this world that's around us. The message of Jesus is profound in its significance, but it's simple in its statement. And there's a clarity about the ethics of Jesus. There's a clarity about the understandability of the plan of Jesus that He has for mankind. And this clarity, simplicity, and understandability, it's refreshing to a perplexed modern mind. And it's refreshing to a simple mind such as mine that's perplexed by the world around us. You see, the teachings of Jesus are relatively simple. For example, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a number of stories that have a profound spiritual meaning. He began with a story of a sower that went forth to sow. And as we read that story, it's easy for us to visualize the story. As, and we see this ancient farmer as he has this sack and he's walking along and sowing the seed. And some falls on hard the hard pathway and some falls among the thorns and 
Some falls on the rocky ground and some, when it was planted, grew up to be a sizable tree. Because it fell in good, rich soil. And Jesus tells the story of the mustard seed. That tiny seed that was planted and grew up to be such a large tree later. He tells the story of the pearl of great price. And it's a story whose meaning is immediately obvious. And the same meaning is found in the story of the hidden treasure. You see, the message of Jesus there is simply when a man finds the church, he's to give up whatever is required in order to possess this eternal spiritual treasure. All of the stories of Jesus are intensely clear and they're deeply meaningful. How simple the teachings of Jesus. And at the same time, how profound the teachings of Jesus. There was another occasion when a scribe came to Jesus. And he asked Jesus the question. He said, what commandment is the first of all? And of course, he was asking which of the commands of the Mosaic law was the most important. One scholar has actually suggested that there are 660 different laws in the list of the law of Moses. And to name the most important would have been a task of sizable proportions. And yet Jesus responded seemingly without any hesitation. He went back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 6. And he quoted a summary statement from the law. He said the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And Jesus went on to add another as he quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's no other commandment greater than these. You can find that reading in Matthew chapter or in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. How simple Jesus made it. Love God, he said, with everything that's in you. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the other commandments in the New Testament simply explain and elaborate those two commandments the other rules of Christianity are man's guide to let him know how to do this they're the guide of how to know how to love God and how to love our neighbor when it comes to the subject of how to be saved Jesus teachings on that are relatively simple also at the very least my part and your part in salvation is relatively simple. God and Christ have already done the heavy lifting. They've already done the complicated and the difficult part. Through the love of God. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
the atonement has been achieved for all men and all women who will accept it. Redemption, justification, and forgiveness have been made available for all men and all women of all time. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace are you saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The providing of pardon through the grace of God is the intricate, complicated, and difficult part of salvation. As we said, the part of men and women is relatively simple. It all begins with an individual hearing the gospel of Christ. To this end, the final recorded words of Jesus before He left this earth were the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, He said, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The Apostles. And the other earth early preachers immediately began to scatter throughout the populated earth telling the story of Jesus Christ to everyone who would listen. That was designed to continue until the end of history. When people hear this story, when people hear the good news about Jesus, they must respond by believing that beautiful golden text of John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believing. That leads to a decision on man and the part of men and women. Believing leads to the decision of turning away from sin and evil and turning toward Jesus Christ and righteousness. You remember when Paul preached on Mars Hill? It's recorded in Acts chapter 17. He said, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now He commandeth all men everywhere to repent. After this change of our will in regard to sin, our faith in Jesus Christ must be made known. Jesus himself said, Whosoever therefore will confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. That's in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. That final act in becoming a child of God involves baptism. Peter had preached to a great multitude on Pentecost in Jerusalem. Many were cut to the heart with the message there of the crucified Savior. And Dr. Luke records for us that when he reached the end of that lesson, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
for the promises to you and your children and all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. This is exactly what Ananias told Saul in Acts 22 and verse 16. He said, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You see, when you boil it all down, our part in salvation is relatively simple. It consists of hearing the gospel. Believing in Jesus as the divine Son of God. Repenting of sin. Confessing faith in Christ. And being baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. And at this point, God adds the obedient to His church. In the ancient apostolic manner. Acts 2 and verse 47 tells us that the Lord was adding to the church daily those that were being saved. Our part in salvation, my part and your part. It can be compared to someone who finds themselves outside on a dark and moonless night. You're outside. There's no moon. And in contrast to the dark surroundings, we see nearby a building. And inside that building is a brilliant light. And we're invited. We're invited to come out of the darkness and to come into this lighted room. We accept the invitation and we come into the light. In coming into the light, what do we do? We don't build the building, do we? We don't play any part in designing or installing the electrical system in the building. We don't generate the electricity. We don't bring the electricity into the building. All of those things have already been freely provided. All we do is accept the invitation and move into the lighted room. Similarly, in salvation, we don't provide the means of salvation. God does. We merely accept the free gift through our obedience to the simple conditions of pardon. Conditions the Lord has laid down in this book. Obedient faith. Are you listening? Obedient faith reaches out to accept the gift of God's grace. But like everything else, how to worship is also relatively simple. What is it? What is worship? In its essence, worship is simply love the Lord and let Him know. Letting the Lord know of our love for Him is done through the five avenues of worship. And those are outlined for us in the New Testament. We discover that the early Christians were guided to sing. Paul's message is recorded in Ephesians 5.19. He said, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. And making melody in your heart to the Lord. We did that. We've done that this morning. Singing is one of the avenues of Christian worship. Immediately after the church began on Pentecost, we find this in Acts 2 verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, 
and in prayers. In that one sentence, there are three avenues of Christian worship. The apostles' teaching or study of the inspired word. The eating of the Lord's Supper and prayer. And in addition to these four, there's one other avenue of Christian worship. And that's the giving of our material prosperity. Paul wrote and Paul instructed Christians, though the Corinthians, on this subject. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. With genuine love and with genuine admiration, we offer our worship to God through singing, study, eating the Lord's Supper, prayer, and the giving of our material offerings. Governing the church and living the Christian life are also very simple processes. Whenever a group of Christians meet regularly together for worship, guess what? A congregation is formed. The congregation then seeks out from among its own number several older men who are mature Christians and names them to be elders or bishops. You can go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and read the qualifications that guide the choices of these men to serve as elders. There are younger men who serve under these elders as special servants. And these younger men are known as deacons. Then in addition to this, there are teachers, evangelists, members who are directed in their Christian activities by these older, more mature Christian men who've been named to be elders. When you think about it, the organization is relatively simple. And yet it works very effectively on every economic and social level of society and even in different national groups. It's marvelously flexible, but a beautifully effective method of governing the Lord's church. Each eldership is, of course, under the direction of the inspired Word of God right here, as given by the apostles and by Christ. In some situations, such as our own, there are no men who meet these qualifications. And in that situation, the congregation is governed through the men's meeting. But the same fundamental principles that guide the selection of elders or bishops must be put into practice in those men's meetings. The younger often need to defer to the older. Those who are more mature spiritually must be given additional respect. There are a lot of guiding principles for this. We've outlined those over the years in lessons and sermons and in articles in our bulletin. We have to always remember, as highly as we value democracy in our country, the Lord's church is not always a democracy. And it can't always be one man, one vote. Because sometimes in those men's meetings, there are judgments that have to be made. 
And those judgments can only be made through the prism of spiritual maturity coupled with the experiences of life. When there are no men that meet the qualifications outlined for an elder, we must always keep in mind it's better for a congregation of God's people to be scripturally unorganized rather than unscripturally organized by appointing unqualified men to serve as elders to oversee the Lord's church. When it comes to living the Christian life, that's a relatively simple thing. The goals are clear and the goals are distinct. And actually, living the Christian life means the making of life's many decisions is much easier. With distinct goals and clear guidelines to assist us. We have a much easier time making our decisions than an individual does who tries to go it alone. You bring it down to its simplest terms. Beloved, living the Christian life is an uncluttered life. It's free from many of the pressures and burdens that the lives of others often accumulate. The simpler life of the Christian gives us time to enjoy our families. Living the Christian life, we can savor the rich relationships that exist within the family circle. The life that's guided by Jesus appreciates and enjoys rich relationships with friends. Those relationships are like the relationships of a brother and a sister. There's also time and encouragement to appreciate the beauties of nature, remembering that every good gift has been provided by a loving Father for children that He loves so deeply. The Christian's life actually moves at a much slower pace. And we're able to enjoy the good things that this world has to offer. And we can be relatively free from the tensions and burdens that sin brings to us. The beauty of it is, Christianity, as outlined in this book, the Lord's simple plan, it's for everyone. It's for old and it's for young. It's for the educated, it's for the uneducated. In this complex world that we live in today, there's a beautiful simplicity that still exists in Jesus Christ. Are you a part of it? If you're not, you're invited to be a part of that simple life in Jesus Christ. Because it's the Lord's invitation as we stand while we're saying.